Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say. As ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Wow, the electoral reform special. What a response. So that's the first announcement I've got to make. Oh, by the way, uh, those of you who are listening for the first time, last week uh, we all got together for uh, a a much projected, much uh, pledged electoral reform special where I discuss my reflections on electoral reform. Now, here's the first announcement. I had so many responses. Uh, This is what I've decided to do and got the go-ahead with the great uh, podmasters that put the uh, podcast together and out to all of us lot in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. I've had so many responses, hundreds. Some of you will be thrilled with this. Those of you who are not, I'm going to reassure you. There's going to be a sequel. You're going to get a bonus podcast this week. For those of you on Patreon, hopefully you'll get it at some point on Wednesday without the ads. And thank you so much for subscribing to Patreon. Uh, But it will be out uh, for everyone on Thursday morning. The Electoral Reform Special, the sequel. It's like Jaws 2. Just when you thought it was safe to go on the beach, it's back. Where I will focus on your brilliant questions, give you my reflections having read all of them. I won't have time to read them all out in the uh, sequel special. But so today, when we come to your questions, there have been so many brilliant questions on other issues, and there are other issues around, that I will read some of those out in this podcast. And then, as I say, we return to the beach, Jaws 2, the Electoral Reform Special 2 which you'll get uh, later this week. Uh, And what a busy old week for us all, because some of you will get it on the day of the uh, autumn statement. Uh, Some of people are calling it a budget. It's the pivotal moment in the Sunak era. So in a moment, I will be reflecting on that. Uh, Then we turn to your questions on non electoral reform issues, and then that special arrives. Just a quick reminder, the Christmas specials are live and looming, uh, live at King's Place on December the 5th, and then a week later, for the first time, at the Old Market Theatre in Brighton, and uh, I think it's actually in Hove. So let's say the Old Market Theatre Hove. Um, But anyway, hopefully all of you on the South Coast, wherever you are, and indeed beyond, uh, will be able to roll up for that Christmas special. I can't believe it, you know. A year ago, the Christmas special at uh, King's Place, uh, it was the day Boris Johnson dressed up as a police officer in the early hours in Liverpool to highlight his law and order week And by the end of that week, he had been accused of breaking one of his own laws. What a year we've got to make sense of in those festive gatherings. Great way to enjoy yourselves. We've had a year of three prime ministers, four chancellors, five education secretaries. It's been silly and deadly serious. And we've got to make sense of 2022. And you know what? We're going to dare to look ahead to 2023. Dun, 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 dun. 
So do join me. The tickets are on sale on the websites of both those venues, King's Place and the Old Market Theatre, and the links will be with the blurb to this podcast. Well, what a lot already to uh, we've crammed in. Now, what is so worrying in my view, about uh, this autumn statement of Jeremy Hunt that is here on Thursday. Some of you might be listening after he's delivered it. Some of you will be listening before. But I think these observations apply. Quite often, somewhere within the dynamic of prime minister and chancellor, the media, the wider kind of pressures and considerations, there is a figure challenging the orthodoxy of the treasury. There is no such figure now. Jeremy Hunt, even before Rishi Sunak became prime minister, was absolutely on the case from a treasury perspective, the perspective of sound money, of balancing the books come what may, He was there famously because, as we've discussed here on the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, in his cinematic meeting with Truss when she was still Prime Minister, he basically told her at Chequers he was going to reverse everything. And what tends to happen in these situations is overcorrection. They identify a problem, and this one was caused largely by the Truss-Kwarteng mini budget and overcorrect and make things worse because Britain now is in a recession and normally in a recession governments act to stimulate activity to try and propel us out of the recession. That's what Gordon Brown did in 2008 with the financial crash and indeed he he coordinated global government activity from uh, places as diverse as Merkel's Germany to the more receptive Obama in the United States, but they all did it. Here, we begin with Jeremy Hunt going in, thinking, right, my job is to reassure the markets. Time for austerity too, in a kind of neat arc. This government opened in 2010 with austerity one, and he's returning to it now. Meanwhile, in number 10 is the personification of Thatcherite orthodoxy, self-declared fiscal conservative, his only substantial government experience being from within the Treasury. And so you have these two figures, Sunak and Hunt, imbued by orthodoxy, that in the current context, what they have to do is to be austere, put up taxes, cut public spending, Now, no doubt they are going to do it in ways that quite a lot of the pressure is propelled forward uh, to beyond 2024 and the next general election, which in itself uh, is going to be utterly stifling of political and economic debate uh, over the next uh, two years. And it will be especially stifling for Labour. Because what happens in these situations is that the BBC in particular take these projections of tough spending as tablets of stone that will happen. In other words, they will believe that if the Conservatives are re-elected, the spending constraints will be imposed as projected now. So every interview with Keir Starmer 
and Rachel Reeves up until 2024, starting this week, will be... Uh, right, so uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have pledged to be very tight on public spending in 2025. Do you agree with them? And if they say, well, we can't, we don't know what, what the circumstances will be in 2025, they say, oh, so you've got a black hole. You're not committed to the public spending constraints that uh, Jeremy Hunt has pledged this government to be committed to. And, uh, you know, you get it already after the mini budget. There was an interview with Keir Starmer done by Martha Carney on the state program. And she sounded like an an accountant to a wayward client. Ah, so you won't do this. Therefore, you will have a black hole in relation to this. And they love that word black hole. So will you put up taxes or cut spending to fill that black hole as if everything is cast in stone? And Labour has to react, and I understand this, in the most cautious manner possible by broadly accepting the spending constraints. That's what Gordon Brown did when Kenneth Clark said famously after the 1997 election he had no intention himself of keeping to the cons- uh, spending limits he had projected for post-1997 when he was in the Treasury as Chancellor. He described them as eye-wateringly tight. They were fiscally lavish and irresponsible compared with what Hunt and Sunak are doing this week. But probably Labour will feel the need to keep more or less within those limits. Otherwise, it will trigger stuff about, ah, so if you don't accept it, which tax are you going to put up to pay for the things uh, that you say you will continue spending on? And this puts Britain in a deeply depressing place where the prospects of high-quality, well-funded public services is propelled into some far-off distant place because of this bonkers, childish media debate about reading these figures as if they are cast in gold and cannot and will not be moved under any circumstance. So that's the first depressing thing. The second one is this, that in a very bizarre, dark way, what politicians do in the midst of economic crises, in Britain anyway, is they return to the past, even if the past was a calamitous failure. The future is foggy. They look into the future, especially these insubstantial figures who we tend to have at the top of politics these days. And the fogginess is intimidating. So they turn back to the past. And what they do is repeat the same mistakes again and again, even though they know that in the past it was a mistake. It's a weird thing, like a film noir, where you sense people turning towards their doom almost knowingly. And before we come to uh, Sunak and Hunt, I'll give you the example of the 1970s, where there were three prime ministers in the 1970s, a, a decade of economic storms and raging inflation and industrial turmoil. They were Heath, Wilson, Callaghan. And each one became prime minister, pledged to not impose incomes and prices policies. 
They saw what happened in the 60s when they were tried out. They didn't work. So Heath came in, you know, oh, no, we're not going to do that. You know, free markets and government keeping a distance and so on. In a panic, uh, as unemployment reached a million and inflation began to soar and strikes were being held with big wage demands attached to them, Heath imposed a very complex, characteristically complex pay policy. It was in three stages, opposed ferociously by Harold Wilson, who was then leader of the opposition, and it brought Heath down. He did it, having opposed it, but he turned to the past and thought, I need a lever, and this is the lever I'm going to choose to sort out strikes and wage inflation and indeed price inflation. And uh, he famously posed the question in February 1974, The question at this election is who governs Britain? And the answer came back from the voters, not you. In came Harold Wilson to his own surprise, and he had proposed something different, a voluntary arrangement with the trade unions, uh, which he called a social contract. Uh, The government would deliver, but so would the unions in terms of pay uh, responsibilities. It didn't work. Uh, inflation got even higher. Was you know for those worried about inflation now, and by the way, you've got every justification to be worried. In the summer of uh, 1975, inflation was 26 percent. So Wilson did something characteristically clever. He um, announced uh, that he wouldn't impose a legally binding pay policy, but if anyone in the public sector awarded uh, inflationary uh, pay awards, they would lose money from the government. They'd be penalised. And the same with the private sector. So it was compulsory in effect, but was called voluntary. So he introduced a pay policy, but on it went. Uh, Turmoil, strikes, inflation. And in fact, Wilson said when he retired or resigned in the spring of 1976, he said one of the reasons for it was... I'm getting tired of the same old problems recurring again and again and again. Uh, Various economic problems, which I tried to deal with in the 1960s, and they're back again. It needs fresh minds to look at them. And in came the fresh mind of Jim Callaghan, who had been an opponent of incomes policies as long ago as the early 1960s, when as shadow chancellor he mocked and uh, viewed with disdain an incomes policy put forward and it failed fleetingly in the dying days of the Conservative government, uh, which was propelled out of power in 1964. So in he came Callaghan, the great friend of the trade unions, from the trade unions, and in a desperate state by 1978, he felt the need to introduce an incomes policy. Inflation was raging, and he turned to the past. What did the others do? They brought in an incomes policy, and he did the same. And it brought him down. The winter of discontent, the strikes then, were a protest against his pay policy. And he uh, lost the election in 1979. But each of them returned to past failures for guidance. They failed too. And in each case, it brought about partly their downfall. Now, let's go to Sunak and Hunt. I thought about the 70s and what happened then with pay policy. When Hunt announced Truss was still prime minister, that he was uh, setting up a board of economic advisers. And one of them, it's a small number, there's only three or four of them. One of them was going to be Rupert Harrison. 
who's a, a very nice guy uh, and was uh, George Osborne's economic advisor when George Osborne introduced his austerity economic policies in 2010. And so Hunt did what those prime ministers and chancellors did in the 70s, return to the past. Then I heard that Hunt had invited in for advice George Osborne, the architect of the package in uh, 2010. Now, it's worth remembering what happened then, because Hunt in his mind and Sunak in his mind uh, regards those years as a, a, a form of vindication, a form of economic triumph. George Osborne came in in 2010, pledged to wipe out the deficit in a term, uh, with real terms spending cuts. Very few other countries in the Western world were adopting such policies. Uh, Most were still going for various forms of fiscal stimuluses, stimuli. What do you call it? Anyway, um, but they were going for real-term spending cuts. By the end of the first term, the deficit had not been wiped out, far from it. And so in the 2015 election, he had the chutzpah, George Osborne, to say, right, we're going to do it in the next term. And again, the BBC took it literally. So every interview with Ed Miliband and Ed Bulls uh, was, so what would you cut to wipe out the deficit? And they couldn't find the words to frame an argument around a sort of Keynesian view Uh, advocated incidentally at the time and now by quite a few Financial Times columnists, uh, Martin Wolf this week, uh, scathing about this uh, austerity economics that has become so fashionable in uh, Tory circles. But they couldn't find a language to say, look, if you stimulate the economy, the economy grows, you get more revenue in, and that enables you to close the deficit. They could, you know, there was no populist language they could find, uh, and it was a fault of theirs because there is populist language available to counter the Osborne thing. Don't let that lot near the economy. They were the ones that crashed the car. They maxed out on the credit card. Don't give them the credit card back. And so he went into that uh, election, pledged to wipe out the deficit. And then shortly before he was sacked by Theresa May as Chancellor, he announced that target was being dropped. It didn't work because when an economy is fragile to further contract and take money out of people's pockets and not focus on growth by cutting capital spending, uh, you make matters worse and revenues decline and it's harder to pay back the deficit. So who do Sunak and Hunt consult? They turn to the past. And even though there is a part of them who knew what happened next after 2010, they're going to do something similar. It won't be precisely the same because things are never repeated in precisely the same way. But it looks as if at a point where Britain is in a recession and growing more slowly than any equivalent economy, with Brexit being the additional factor in Britain that doesn't apply to the other economies that are growing faster, there they are about to increase taxes and cut public spending in key areas and follow very closely what will happen with capital spending because it's through capital spending that you get growth. Although not just that, if you put money in people's pockets, 
rather than take it away, those on middle to low incomes, they tend to spend it. And if they spend it, that means that uh, restaurants, pubs, hotels and other sectors become a little more vibrant because money is still being spent rather than saved just to pay for fuel bills and food bills and so on. Now, whether Labour can frame an argument around economic growth and the role of government in generating economic growth compared to these fiscally conservative uh, Sunak and Hunt is going to be an interesting question. Certainly in the build-up, I think Rachel Reeves has an authority and a command that's impressive. But framing arguments that do not both fall into the trap of allowing uh, the Conservative leadership and their newspapers and then the BBC to talk about black holes and tax bombshells, whilst being able to prove that there will be significant difference in terms of generating economic growth and therefore finding the revenues to improve public services under a Labour government is a challenge. Doable, but it's a challenge. And also watch out, as well as capital spending, and by the way, in his first financial statement uh, in 2010, after the general election, George Osborne, as Chancellor, said that he thought it was a big mistake in the recession of the early 1990s for the then Conservative government to cut capital spending. We then looked at the details of what Osborne was proposing, and it included cuts in capital spending. I don't even know if he realised it, but you see the Treasury puts it in, given half a chance. And uh, they will be in the Treasury up for all of this, sometimes mistakenly. Truss was right about Treasury orthodoxy not always being a good thing. Gordon Brown and Ed Balls were pretty wary of Treasury orthodoxy, and one of the fallings out with Brown and Alistair Darling, when Alistair Darling was Chancellor, was that he thought uh, Alistair Darling had been captured too much by Treasury orthodoxy. Well, Sunak won't be worried about that. He's a fan of Treasury orthodoxy. Another thing to look out for is social care. Uh, just a second or two on this because it's you know, the podcast in itself. But let's not forget that when Boris Johnson was elected in 2019, before the election, uh, uh, you know, one of the many prime ministers who arrived in number 10, elected on the back of a few thousand Tory members. He said he had a plan for social care and he was going to deliver it. No, he didn't have a plan. Uh, it was an early indication of the reliability of him as a narrator. But in the December 2019 manifesto, they pledged to implement social care. Now, it has been haphazard all the way through. The social care levy was going to be paid for by a national insurance rise. The money then was going to be allocated to the NHS because it was in such trouble and not social care. So it's all been a complete shambles. But the pledge was there. And if they drop it, and Sunak has indicated he was never enthusiastic, I don't think he has the imag imaginative empathy to know what it is like for people worrying about relatives and the costs of social care and the staffing and the quality of the social care. The whole thing needs to be thought through, not just the money, which they've made a complete mess of. So Rishi Sunak says they're standing on the 2019 manifesto. That's why there doesn't need to be a general election. Well, that was a central pledge. 
And Johnson's instincts were right, but as ever with him, it was only an instinct. It didn't take any detailed policy shape because that involves the grind of hard work. But it was there. And it's almost certainly going to be dropped. Uh, and it, they will pretend to be postponing it, but they, there's no enthusiasm for, for Sunak. With, with Jeremy Hunt, I think there was an enthusiasm for it, but he is now being sort of sucked up by the Treasury. He is anyway a fiscal conservative, and I, I think it's, it's, it's going nowhere, which again presents Labour with a huge challenge. This has to be addressed. Other civilised countries in Europe have uh, impressive social care provision. This country increasingly becoming like a very poor state in the United States needs it and it hasn't got it and it's not going to get it in spite of those joint pledges outside number 10 when he became prime minister, uh, seemingly a sort of moment of great significance and in the 29 manifesto, absolutely central to it and it's going nowhere. And now, if it's okay with all of you, your brilliant questions. And for those of you who don't know, uh, if you want to raise questions on this or anything else, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. So let's get going with your questions. I say, uh, if if you kind of missed the beginning, which I don't understand how you've done, uh, the questions, the many hundreds of questions that I got uh, after the electoral reform special, some of those will be read out in the electoral reform special two coming up uh, later this week. So this, these are going to be on other issues. Uh, Mark Hall says, I'm back in contact from Switzerland uh, after quite a while. Yeah, I remember you, Mark. Yeah, he said, still following each week and here I am again from Switzerland. I'm finding US politics less depressing than those of the UK. So I'm hoping to engage your analytical skills, good luck with that, Mark, on the problems facing the US Republican Party. If they choose anyone else to run in 2024, Trump will surely split the Republicans, risking them being out of power for two or even more cycles. But if they nominate Trump, the Republicans will surely lose, but then could probably move on post-2024. I'm not sure about that, Mark. I I think the potency of Trump, although clearly uh, there before the midterms and still there to a lesser extent after the midterms, has always been overstated in the sense that wherever you look in politics, um, it's very hard for a one-trick pony to play the trick for a second time. And uh, the comeback of Trump was uh, based on the idea that there was enough appetite for him to perform the same trick again. You know, the, uh, the, the media fake news stuff, which he's still repeating, the make America great again, kind of sloganizing. And him as a performer, I think it's harder after those four years in power and then being knocked out. It becomes even harder after the midterm because the mythology of him as a powerful election-winning force has been dented further. I mean, in theory, it should have been dented when he was a one-term president and lost, but he has generated enough mythology 
uh, around that election result to give him the room to breathe a bit. That has narrowed with the midterms. Now, the Republicans are split anyway, many different ways. You know, there are the sort of Trumpite American parochial nationalists. There are the kind of right-wing, turbocharged, Thatcherite uh, Republicans. There are the sort of Reaganite Republicans, low tax, borrow to cut them if you want, uh, and so on, uh, without even getting near the social issues that uh, make America different to Britain, abortion and all the other things. But I, I don't think there will be a formal schism. And, and if Trump does try to stand as an independent, he'll go nowhere. But you're right, in those circumstances, he would split some of the vote, uh, which is maybe what you're thinking, Mark. He stands as an independent, there's an official Republican and the vote split. Thank you very much. Next, uh, Peter Liff, questions oh, on Keir Starman's recruitment of those from the Blair era. Oh, yeah. You do frequently make the point that Blair didn't draw from Wilson's team. Yeah, that's it, it. You've always got to look ahead and a really healthy, vibrant political party. Uh, the leader can pick formidable new recruits, as Blair did in 94, Alistair Campbell, Jonathan Powell, David Miliband. Uh, they were all new. Um, he didn't go for Joe Haynes and others from the Wilson era, Bernard Donoghue, um, and so on. Anyway, uh, Peter wonders, to what extent did Wilson draw talent from the Gateskill and Apley teams? Well, not in his own inner circle, Peter. I mean, obviously, there were formidable figures in Wilson, on Wilson's front bench in opposition from that era. Callaghan, for example, you know, and many others. But not the inner circle. His inner circle were unique. It was quite eccentric. You know, that Marcia Williams was his great confidant. Uh, and I think leaders need a kind of trusted confident who you kind of been with for a bit and you understand and know they understand you and just want, you know, and all this kind of thing. And Wilson had some of that, but it became a very paranoid and fractious inner circle as the years took their toll. Dun, 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 dun. Now, Dominica Jewell, our correspondent in France. The French commune in which I live has a population of 457 and has recently built a centre for communal use, meetings, celebrations, Christmas fairs and a post office. A bar, cafe and grocery store have also recently been opened and there's a primary school. I've just received an invitation to attend the inauguration ceremony of the new post office, which will be followed by a modest drinks reception. I believe this degree of investment in small communities is instrumental in strengthening social bonds. Is this an example of levelling up? Yeah, Dominica, I'd like to know. I mean, who, who finances it, Dominica? You know, who sets these things up? What, what is the agent that produces this idyllic-sounding are we all invited, Dominica? Uh, maybe to the Christmas fair. But yeah, tell us a bit more uh, uh, about how it's financed, what control you have over it. In other words, is it sort of Cameron's big society vision or is it part of a local authority? Or, or how, Anyway, yeah, no, it sounds, it sounds good and the resources are good. And yeah, levelling up, it is an example. But in Britain, first, we need the infrastructure. And that's, again, watch the Hunt statement. North of England, terrible public transport. Andy Burnham is sorting out the deregulation that had happened to the buses, which were a disaster. The trains need sorting. Uh, and, and then you, you need skilled training. Trust got it wrong, not in her prescription. She's right. Growth is the key, not in her diagnosis. But her prescription was a disaster. She thought tax cuts would do it. It needs investment. 
Anyway, thank you, Dominica. Your French life sounds great. Over to David. Uh, yeah, now, David, before I say what it is, very strict about his pronunciation. His David Maglioco. I think I pronounced it right, isn't it? Although he tells me the Italian pronunciation is more subtle with intonation on the penultimate syllable. But David says, I was reading a discussion in the FT that said that uh, Democrats had taken too long to pivot away from neoliberal economics towards a more middle class, i.e. UK working class, friendly economic platform, but were now benefiting from doing so. So is SKS, Sakir Starmer, is he better advised to make a similar economic offer based on some form of Green New Deal to red wall voters rather than fretting about cultural war issues? This would provide the vision narrative optimism that many see as lacking at the moment. But David, uh, Kisama is offering a Green New Deal. The fact that you are not aware of it uh, suggests messaging uh, needs some work to be done on it. But on this, they're being radical. On some things, they're being very cautious. Uh, but they plan to borrow a lot of money uh, as things stand. To um, They've given examples of what they will do with some of it. Some of it's very good. For example, reconfiguring uh, houses, uh, you know, because in, in Britain, some of the old houses just pump in cold air from outside. And in Italy, they've done this in a much more benevolent climate. But it's such a waste and a good way of becoming more energy uh, or less dependent on energy from outside is to make these homes more uh, efficient. Uh, and that's one example of many. Uh, but obviously, they need to do more to excite you, David, and to, or to let you know what the hell's going on. OK, Stuart Grant says, noting that uh, Sunak is more popular than the party he leads for now, at least. Do you agree with me that if this gap continues, we should expect a very presidential style of campaign in 2024 from the Tories, akin to the May version in 2017? Yeah, it's easily forgotten. Theresa May was told because she was so popular to fight a presidential campaign all about her. That did not go well. Where the branding will be very much about Sunak with little reference to the party he leads. Will Labour strategists be expecting this already and planning accordingly? Well, let's see how it goes with Rishi Sunak. I think he's had a very mixed start as Prime Minister. Uh, I thought, I mean, I, I'm not with him on fiscal conservatism, but I thought he would be a more adept and polished leader early on and get something of a honeymoon. Uh, instead, it's been. Uh, you know, just think we haven't even talked about Gavin Williamson going and the Braverman saga and other things. And, and, and the statement this Thursday will be interesting as well. Um, but if he is popular, you bet it will be about him. But it's too early to work on the assumption, I think, that that is the case at the moment, uh, Stuart. Oh, yeah. The other thing is, Stuart knows the pub where Truss and Quateng met, the Richard I pub in Greenwich, uh, to uh, prepare for their triumphant weeks in uh, at the top of British politics. And it's another example. You know, we, we, we play this game together of great places to visit of political significance. Presidential libraries have been quoted and other things. Uh, yeah, well, that is a point. And maybe we should all head for that pub and discuss economic policy together, uh, hoping for the same glorious outcome as Quateng's mini 
budget. Thank you, Stuart. Noah Keats says, uh, he said, I thought your podcast on electoral reform was fantastic. Thank you very much. I've had some good reactions. Some people disagree with me, Noah, as you'll see when we get to uh, electoral reform special, the sequel. We'll soon have one, you know, electoral reform, the musical. That's that we're getting towards that one. Anyway, uh, Noah says it got me thinking about whether I should alter my support for first past the post. Yes, yeah, I've been thinking about it. I, I was a supporter of first past the post. Anyway, he, uh, we're going to do that in the special sequel. Uh, moving away from that top topic, uh, I'm sure many questions on it from listeners. Yeah, loads, hundreds. Uh, no, I wonder whether you could comment on the arrest of the three journalists covering Just Stop Oil protests. Indeed, the shocking response from the Hertfordshire Police and Crime Commissioner have reaffirmed my belief that PCC should be abolished altogether, completely. Uh, the, the the whole thing, these ridiculous posts were part of the sort of early David Cameron uh, period, Um where he thought it would bring about new forms of sort of local accountability. It's just been another layer of meaningless uh, incompetence. And they should go, uh, I think Theresa May was of the view they should go, I can't remember. But yeah, this oil press is very interesting because it's not working on their own terms. If the message is about uh, making people reflect on the use of oil and oppose it, uh, all the debate is about the methods the disruption of the roads, the behaviour of the police. Um, But I agree with you, Noah, that that layer of policing should go. Dominic Toy says, uh, what do you think... Keir Starmer's game plan is in Scotland. In a recent interview in Scotland, he said that even if the Supreme Court rules it legal for the Scottish government to run a referendum, he'll be against it. Surely if he wants Scotland back, he needs to back it. Uh, Dominic, he can't. He can't. He can't go into the next election, general election, uh, supporting a referendum or supporting one before then, because it would be, it would A, just strategically play into the hands of the conservative message, which will be reinforced by their newspapers, uh, that uh, there will be chaos under Starmer with Nicola Sturgeon pulling all the strings and a hung parliament and all this kind of thing. But also, you know, given that that this probably will not be the verdict of the Supreme Court to leap into a hypothesis about it being something else. I I just uh, disagree with you about that, uh, Dominic. Now, Andrew Anderson, I think, is also writing from a similar perspective. The question is, does Keir Starmer not care how badly the pro-Brexit anti-immigration wrap yourself in the Union Jack plays in Scotland? uh, Yeah, I think Andrew's referring when he was up there recently, Keir Starmer gave an argument uh, where he said, in effect, uh, we phrased it clumsy, there were too many foreign uh, people working in the NHS, he wanted more British jobs and all the rest of it. And Andrew argues this kind of thing goes down uh, badly in Scotland. Well, I know, you know, one of the things uh, he is preoccupied by has to be is whether it's possible to gain seats in Scotland. So the messaging for Scotland is important. I saw that interview and he should have just said, look, what we need to do partly to address the labour shortage is to train people here so they can help fill the shortages. But you quickly get on to British jobs for British workers, which Gordon Brown tried out. It didn't work for him. And, um, the whole issue of labour shortages is being so dishonestly debated when uh, this recession is partly being brought about because uh, a lot of companies could, and of course the NHS, could 
function better if they could get the staff but the staff aren't filling the vacancies labor shortages uh, and that's partly to do with the pandemic but is also to do with a johnson and frost brexit uh, keith Finchty says he was surprised at the poor performances of sunak uh, during prime minister's questions Penny Mordaunt's face, a picture at these events. Yeah, Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House, sits nearby uh, looking disdainful. Um, Today, Braverman nodding her head next to him. Can they really last two years? Uh, Well, Keith Finchley, with a majority of 80, yes, they can last for two years. However tense it becomes internally, they can last for two years. There won't be an election until 2024 uh, and maybe till the very last minute in 2025 if they are a long way ahead in the polls, which they still are at the moment. The Sunak honeymoon period has come to a very quick end. Now, interesting question from Henry uh, Midgley, who wondering about uh, Gavin Williamson, reflecting on how difficult it is to make the transition from a fixer and plotter in the back room to an actual figure in their own right. Clearly, that's what Williamson wanted at the Department of Education and Ministry of Defence, and possibly that's what he wanted to rebuild at the Cabinet Office. He wasn't as successful a minister as Peter Mandelson, who was quite good at Northern Ireland. Yeah, and when he came back at trade as well, Henry. Uh, Going beyond his weakness as a figure, do you think that there is an issue uh, uh, with the likes of Mandelson and Williamson, who have been behind-the-scenes fixers when they try and get into frontline politics, uh, partly because of the enemies you create as a fixer. I think that is a very interesting question. And I think it is a problem. When you have become, well, leaders like Tony Blair was felt himself to be dependent on Peter Mandelson. He used to say at times of trouble, get me Peter, get me Peter. And Peter would come in and cheer him up and make him laugh and so on. And, and therefore, Peter Mandelson, he's been quite open about struggle to become his own person as a minister and became embroiled in feverish internal feuds from which he could not escape. Uh, and he, he, he as you say, was much more substantial than Gavin Williamson. But Gavin Williamson clearly wanted to be a cabinet minister and known as a cabinet minister, not this fixer. But he couldn't let go or leave it behind and made too many enemies. And uh, it's over for him as a result. Over to now Mike Indian. So I think you underestimate Sunak. I want to believe he is well-meaning, but my gut says there is ambition and cunning there. He's focused and across the facts better than any prime minister since Brown, and I believe he can learn the lessons of failed party management that did for his four predecessors. Yeah. Oh, and he said, oh, my friend Greg Collins and I will be joining you at King's Place on December the 5th for our first live show. Oh, see you there, Mike and Greg. Um, It will be fun. And see, hopefully, many more of you there as well. And he said he's penning this on the tube en route to watch a concert. Oh, well, I hope the concert was great. Yeah. So, I no, I don't un- remember. I did a podcast recently explaining the narrow route towards a Sunak victory at the next election. I'm not saying that route will be the one that's followed, but it exists. So I don't underestimate him, and I think you are right on those fronts. But it strikes me, and it's always struck me, he got the chancellorship very, very quickly. And now he's got this in a dire context and in in a weird way. He lost the leadership contest and yet won it. And it takes a subtle, fully developed leader 
to deal with these challenges. And I think he's half formed because it's all happened so quickly. But the, there are strengths, clearly. And he will be more across the detail. He's a better interviewee than any of those that have preceded him in this weird, long period of conservative rule. Laundry Joe has written, so-called, for new listeners, because he does his laundry whilst watching. Uh, so he takes a break sometimes, come to the live shows. I hope you can make one of the ones in December, Laundry Joe. Being a leader in opposition with a pole lead is often compared to carrying a fine china vase across a slippery floor. Yeah, uh, that was the Roy Jenkins metaphor applied to Tony Blair in the build-up to 97. I'm worried that Keir Starmer has come close to dropping the vase a couple of times. I'm passionate about climate change and believe we're doing too little. However, I think it's bad politics for Ed Miliband to be entertaining the prospect of reparations for climate change. Uh, it, it triggered a wild Daily Mail attack about Red Ed and so on. Similarly, Keir Kiersama has not quite mastered the art of appealing to swing voters without looking like he's desperately trying to appeal to them. For example, in his media appearances over the weekend, he said too many people from overseas are being recruited, recruited to the NHS. Yeah, that was an interview in Scotland that I've referred to, uh, Laundry Joe. My understanding is that the art of opposition is to make the incremental feel simultaneously aspirational and reassuring, whilst the opportunity of government is to make the radical and courageous appear incremental and the natural next step. That is a good description of the contrast between both of them, Laundry Joe. He says, Starmer has done incredibly well to take control of the Labour Party, but he's far from home and dry. Uh, yeah, I, you know, the Ed Miliband thing was then repeated by Rishi Sunak as a policy the government was committed to. So while you've got to be careful with the way you frame things, not to invite the mail in for a slaughter, um, I don't think that can be classified as a mistake when Rishi Sunak is committed to the same uh, policy. Uh, I agree. I watched the interview in Scotland. I thought, oh, God, you know, the Red Wall has such a hold over him that he wants to feed every crude prejudice, even when I suspect it's not a prejudice. The talk in the Red Wall will be partly about bloody hell, the waiting list to get into a hospital, you know, to see a GP. Labour shortages. It's got to be sorted out. OK, uh, Kathy Mears, I'm going to rush through. We've got a couple more. Kathy Mears has noted Sunak's U-turns over things like COP27 as a sign of a fundamental weakness. Yeah, I think, Kathy, he, it, it, it's come to him so early, you know, and, and his chancellorship was in such a weird period. I think he's going to find he's out of his depth quite quickly. But that does not mean he's going to go. Rishi Sunak will last the course until 2024 or January 2025, went the latest point of an election. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, Richard Godfrey, I enjoy your podcast on Patreon very much. Oh, thank you, 
uh, listening this week in sunny California whilst walking by the uh, the Pacific Ocean. Oh, right. Well, think of us here in uh, rainy, cold Britain, Richard. Not that we're envious in any way at all. And Richard said, I wonder if you listened to Nick Robinson's interview with David Frost on the BBC's Political Thinking. Well, obviously, I don't listen to other podcasts because this one fulfills every need, uh, Richard. But yeah, I did hear it because I follow Frost, Lord Frosty Frost, closely. I always enjoy your ridicule of Frosty Frost, but part of me wondered if you were being harsh on him. Yeah, I occasionally wonder that as well, because my take on politicians is they are more interesting than they seem. The case is usually more nuanced. They're well intended. And so I have to ask myself all the time, am I being unfair on Frosty Frost and reach the conclusion each time that I'm not? And this is what Richard concluded as well. If you listen to the podcast, he comes across as everything you say about him and more. He was writhing and wriggling all the way through. Almost impossible to believe that people can actually take him seriously. Why do you think he's admired by some? I just can't see why. Well, on the right, they see him as their great crusader who in inverted commas delivered the hardest possible uh, brexit to uh, quote frosty uh, to set britain free freedom freedom lord frosty set us free and i'm afraid he is utterly fraudulent he ran away from the most uh, powerful job to deliver brexit because he was frightened of the consequences and as i predicted on this podcast long ago he would just become a media commentator which dare i say it is an easier task than delivering Brexit in any form, let alone his with its multiple dire consequences. Anyway, look, I told you there were some great questions uh, not to do with electoral reform after last week's podcast. Uh, And thank you for those. But I did also say there are hundreds uh, related to electoral reform. So the special is coming up later this week. In the meantime, if you could leave a review on the, you know, the iPhone podcast app, very easy to leave a review, but only good reviews, please. I say, looking forward to seeing some of you live in uh, the Old Market Theatre down there in Brighton and in King's Place in London in December. The links are there with tickets on the blurb and on their websites. And dun, 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 stand by for Electoral Reform Special, the sequel. Uh, later this week, where some of your brilliant questions will trigger further reflections. And yeah, it's it it's there as part of our mission together to make sense of everything. And I can tell you this week, there's going to be a lot to make sense of. So take a deep breath, keep baking, running, swimming, walking on the Pacific Ocean in the sunshine. Um, and let's all get together again, even sooner than usual. Thank you very much. Take care. See you soon. Bye.